As I mentioned last time, as when we were together in Daniel, chapter 7 begins the accounts of four different visions that Daniel was given by the Lord. And last week, last not last week, but the last time we shared in Daniel together, we looked at chapter 7 and the vision that was given there. And then a second vision is in chapter 8, but I want us to consider an interesting uh, fact about this, this book. From chapter 2 and verse 4, the book of Daniel until the end of chapter 7, the book of Daniel is written in Aramaic, not Hebrew. Chapter 1 is in Hebrew, and then after that segment... In Aramaic, chapter 8 is once again written in Hebrew. And many have pondered over that, why God prompted Daniel to write in two different languages. And I, I think an interesting insight about this is that Aramaic was the language of the people in the Babylonian and Persian empires. And so it seems that Daniel wrote his memoirs as it were, his testimony of what God had done in his life, and also particularly the vision in chapter 2 and in chapter 7, which are complementary, showing world history from God's point of view, that these are messages that were meant for everyone, for all the nations, if anyone would have ears to hear. And so it seems that in the wisdom of God, God prompted Daniel to write that part in Aramaic so that the people could hear it and take heed and respond to who God is. Beginning with chapter 8, God begins to focus his attention on his Jewish people, on his people. And therefore, it would be appropriate to begin writing then back in the Hebrew language. I have wondered about this reality, and I think it again shows us the glory of our God, how our God is concerned about the salvation of the whole earth, about all peoples knowing him, because he is the God of all. He is the true and living God, as we have heard. He is the Lord. And so I am thankful that our God is not a God who wants to hide away, but our God is a God who wants to reveal and wants to make himself known. In our text today, Daniel then comes to the second vision that he was given. In verse 1 of chapter 8, we read, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me Daniel, after the one that had appeared to me the first time. And so, again, we come to know that this was probably about 550 BCE, that Daniel was probably about 70 years old, and that this vision came to him, that it was given by the Lord, and unlike the one in chapter 7, this one doesn't seem to have been at night, but rather it was a vision that God gave him perhaps during the day. In verse 2, we read, I saw in the vision, 
And it so happened, while I was looking, that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is the province of Elam. And I saw the vision that I, in the vision, that I was by the river Ulai. So it seems that while Daniel was still in Babylon, that in this vision he was transported to Shushan, Susa, which would become a leading city and perhaps even the capital city of the Persian Empire. Then, in verse 3, Daniel lifted his eyes and he saw, and there, standing beside the river, was a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand. But he did according to his will and became great. And then in verse 5, As I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west. Verse 4, later on in, in this chapter, Daniel will record the interpretation that was given to him. And we find in verse 20 that the ram which Daniel saw with two horns were the kings of Media and Persia. And so this is, in one sense, this chapter is rather easy to interpret. God gives the interpretation within the chapter. Another interesting reality, insight, is that verse 4 talks about the Media-Persian Empire. And in one verse, basically, we've covered 200 years, just like that. In God's perspective and economy, God sees all of world history. And for us to see world history from God's point of view is so helpful. It helps put everything in proper perspective. We see that our life on this earth is a flash, a vapor that we pass quickly, that ages come and ages go. Moses writing in his Psalm 90, he said, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. It's important for us to realize the brevity of our lives. And regardless of how powerful political entities appear in our day, regardless of how powerful the forces are that seem to oppose God, it is important for us to have God's perspective and to see what he really thinks and to know what is really going to happen. In verse 5 then, Daniel was considering this vision. He was fully engaged. God gives us a mind for a purpose. God gives us a mind that we might meditate on the things of God, that we might explore and understand. Certainly we cannot discover without God's help, but God never tells us to put our brains on the shelf. He invites us to think, to consider, to look, to explore, to ask questions, and to listen. As Daniel was considering, suddenly a male goat, a shaggy goat, came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. 
And he came to the ram. This ram that was described as one from which no hand could deliver. This ram that seemed so powerful and so great. The goat came. He came to the ram, which had been standing beside the river, and he ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to withstand him. This entity that had been so powerful that nothing could stand against him, this ram, this empire, was suddenly trampled to the ground. He cast him down. The goat cast him down to the ground and trampled him. And there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore, the male goat grew very great. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken. And in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. Again, the interpretation is given for us in this book. In chapter, in verse 21, God says to, through his angelic being, through Gabriel, to Daniel, And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn is between, that is between its eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that horn, but not with its power. What a graphic, accurate picture of history. The Greek Empire was led by Alexander the Great. And it is notable of his conquests that they were swift. The goat being pictured as not even touching the ground shows us how fast the conquest happened. It is reported in history that in 12 short years, Alexander conquered the known world and stretched the boundaries of the known world to its farthest point to that time. And it is said that at that point, after conquering so much so quickly, and at the age of 32, that Alexander wept because there was no place else to conquer. He was a hard-living person. He was a, a, a brilliant strategist, but he was also an arrogant person. And then, suddenly, he was dead. It is said that he got a fever. And because he had lived so hard, such a debauched lifestyle, then he could not withstand the fever, and he died just like that as a young man. There was a period of time afterwards where the Greek Empire was was being fought over by his four generals. And his four generals ended up dividing it into four different segments, just as God had predicted several hundred years before it ever happened. Daniel sees a strong empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, collapse in a moment. And then he sees the succeeding empire that strong, powerful leader, broken in an instant, and not by any human efforts. Again, we are confronted with the reality of mortality. 
And that political power, as strong as it seems, is limited. And that once again, we are reminded who is really in charge. God is in charge. God is on his throne. And then the next part of the vision in verse 9. And out of one of these four generals, one of these four parts of the kingdom divided, came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land, towards the land of Israel, called Palestine at that time. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground, and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. And by him the daily sacrifices were taken away. And the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of the transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. And he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. A very, very dark time in the history of God's people, in the history of the Jewish nation. This leader we know is Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV. He was characterized primarily by the qualities of treachery and arrogance. He got his position through bribery and then to establish his his position, he began to persecute the people of God and that intensified as time went on. In fact, in 170, one of his cohorts executed the high priest Onius III. And then he began to even focus his persecutions on the Jewish people more and more. He forbid them to read Torah. He forbid them even to have copies of the scripture. He forbid circumcision. And then, at the height of his terror in 167 BCE, he set up the image of Zeus in the temple precincts and sacrificed a pig on the altar this ultimate desecration of the temple of God in Jerusalem. It was a horrible, a terrible time. This arrogant man got power, and then in his arrogance, he he sought to eliminate the truth. He stood against truth. He eliminated the daily sacrifices, and he even stood against the prince of the hosts himself, Even God himself. In verse 23, this talks about, again, interpreting this figure. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise, this Antiochus IV, having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his cunning, 
He shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. This was his rise to power. But then God raised up that one that we know. The celebration of Hanukkah is all about this great victory. Judas Maccabeus, his father being the one who took a stand. And then Judas was the one who regained the temple and consecrated it again. And Antiochus, when he heard of this defeat in 164, when he heard that his forces had been defeated and that the temple had been restored, and because of other military failures, he became full of grief and remorse, and some say he even became insane. One account says that he was so filled with grief at these military reversals that he was riding in his chariot and he was fell off and he was severely injured. And then at a later point that he had some form of consumption, maybe even abdominal cancer. And the end result was that he was gone, just like that. After a terrible reign of terror, he was gone. Verse 25, but he shall be broken without human means. God intervened and removed him from the scene. In verse 13, as we kind of jump back and forth here to see God's revealing of the truth. Daniel is listening in after the vision is being given to him. And then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said, to that certain one who was speaking. How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. While there is some debate about the meaning of these 2,300 days, The real accurate translation, 2,300 evening mornings. Some would divide that time and period, time and half, saying it's 1,150 mornings, 1,150 evenings. So basically 1,150 days. But I think it means 2,300 days. And it begins, I think, with the execution of that former high priest, Onius III and culminates when the temple is restored and rededicated by Judas in 164, December the 14th, which we celebrate 25th Kislev, Hanukkah. 2,300 days, six plus years, and then it was over. Grieving, heartbreaking, that period of time. And yet, the reality is it was limited. God, in his wisdom, permits terrible evils in our world. But at the same time, God limits it. And God declares that it will not last, that we'll have an end. 
And it will be an end that will not necessarily come by any human means, but by direct intervention on his hand. And in the meantime, God also reveals that he is the one who sustains us through dark times. For God to reveal this terrible event in world history, it helps us know that our God knows, that nothing takes our God by surprise. Therefore, whatever dark time God might take us into, it is not a surprise to him. And we know that because he knows, he is in charge, that he can take us through it if he allows it to happen. In verse 15, Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning, that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. And so he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and stood me upright. And he said, look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. For at the appointed time, the end shall be. I want to see God face to face, don't you? I want to see him. I want to be in an intimate personal relationship with him. And yet, at the same time, I want to be realistic. I want to realize that this is the awesome God. To see the realities of heaven, to see his revelation, it, I don't know if we can physically handle it. Daniel could not. He fell asleep. Perhaps it means he fainted. He passed out on the spot. When the heavenly angelic being Gabriel the messenger came to share with him the meaning of the vision, he just went into a deep sleep. The touch of God on his life through his angelic servant gave him strength to keep on going. This, this says to me there's balance that God is our Father. God is our intimate friend. But God is also God. There is no other God but Him. And He is awesome. He is incredible. He is powerful and strong. And to be near Him is glorious and undoing at the same time. As Isaiah said, when he saw the glorious Lord seated on the throne, Yeshua on the throne. Woe is me, for I am undone. For I have seen the Lord of hosts. I am a man of unclean lips. When we encounter the truly holy and good and pure, it could soak the life right out of us, the physical life. And yet... By His grace and mercy, He touches us so that we can see Him, we can fellowship with Him, we can hear, we can receive His revelation. 
And Daniel was then given the revelation that we read, the interpretation of the dream, these empires. And then in verse 26, the conclusion of the revelation, the vision of the evenings and mornings which was told is true. Therefore seal up the vision for it refers to many days in the future. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. It impacted him for days, this glorious vision. But it was also a great, great encouragement to see that God is caring for his people even when the darkest times happen. To see that God will bring an end to evil. That it cannot last. That it has a very specific shelf life. And to see that God triumphs. That is a great encouragement to us, the people of God. Now this Antiochus figure. While he was a specific figure in history. He is also one that prefigures, that is a type of the coming world leader that will wreak even greater havoc on this earth. This gives us hope and encouragement and confidence again. God knows what's coming for us. It could happen in our lifetime. And God says, I know I took care of that leader. I'm going to take care of this next one as well. As wicked, as terrible as that leader is, you can still trust me through it all. Shaul wrote in his second letter to the Thessalonians about that future leader. In the second chapter of his letter to the the Thessalonians, Shaul writes this. Now, brethren... Concerning the coming of our Lord Yeshua Mashiach and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Messiah had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin or the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or is that, is, that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Doesn't that sound like Antiochus? Sounds just like him. But this figure is yet to come. Shaul had this revelation after Yeshua had left the earth. And then in verse 5, but do... Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? God had given this insight to Shaul for the congregations. In verse 6, And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. The lawless one is coming, and here's what's going to happen. Just like Antiochus, here's what's going to happen. Whom the Lord 
will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. All Yeshua has to do is show up. That's all. Just shine in his glory and bang, that last evil ruler is toast. That's it. That's right. Bless the Lord. That is great encouragement to us. You see, that kind of hope will help us go through whatever dark times may be ahead. Our God is the God who sustains us through dark times. He knows what's coming and He says, I will bring it to a good conclusion. The kingdom of God is the one that reigns and rules and wins forever and ever. And one day, God is going to wipe out all evil, eliminate it completely. One day, it's all going to be gone forever and not very far away. This is our God. God knows the future. God has given us insight about the future. When we look at this prophecy in Daniel, we see that we can trust God. He knows what's coming. This prophecy was fulfilled specifically, detail by detail. And God told it all to His servant in advance so that you and I might be encouraged, might be sustained, might keep on keeping on. One of the most encouraging things that I've experienced in these days, I mean, the the Scriptures must be our lifeblood in these days. To be in this book often, frequently, day by day, even frequently in the day, to let this soak our lives. But part of the Scripture that has come to mean more to me than anything is the book of Psalms. And one of the Psalms that I read recently, Psalm 94, seems to speak about this whole issue of dark times. In verse 12 of Psalm 94, we read, Blessed is the man whom you instruct, O Lord, and teach out of your law, that you may give him rest from the days of adversity. The instruction of God helps us in difficult times. Until the pit is dug for the wicked. It's going to happen. It's a certainty. God is going to take care of the wicked. For the Lord will not cast off his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. His judgment will return to righteousness, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who will rise up for me against the evildoers? Who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? And the less the Lord had been my help, my soul would soon have settled in silence. But God is our help in these times, in these desperate times. If I say my foot slips, your mercy, your steadfast love, your hesed, O Lord, will hold me up. The steadfast love of the Lord is what holds us up in dark times. In the multitude of my anxieties within me, your comforts delight my soul. When you and I go through these dark times, God himself will be our help. God promises that he will take care of the evil. God says that 
My work in your life is based on my covenant love, not on your ability to earn it. And God says that when we look around us and we begin to get anxious, that His comforts will come and give us delight. Thanks be to God for the help that He gives us and the reality that He will sustain us through dark times. Let's pray together. Our hope is in You, Father. Our hope is in You, Yeshua, the Son of Man, seated on the throne. Our hope is in You. We thank You, Father, for Your consolations. We thank You that You are in charge of world history. We thank You that even in the darkest of days, You have given us Your great and precious promises. You will sustain us. You will provide all that we need. And so, Father, in these days, help us be about Your business. Help us be about Your kingdom work. Help us be walking intimately with You. Help us be in Your Word. And give us Your joy, Your delight, Your consolations that we may go through these days with joy and hope and peace. In Yeshua's name, Amen.